Today is a Newcomers Orientation Sunday. If you would like to learn more about Hope Church and Unitarian Universalism, please join me after the service in my church study. It is located directly behind this sanctuary and through the double doors. We begin a new series of sermons today to consider the prophetic voices that have influenced today's liberal religion. Today's prophet is Charles Darwin. So let's begin. Charles Darwin didn't see it coming. He was on the road taken by many young men of means and education in 1830s Britain, who felt some responsibility for the public interest as well as for the pursuit of happiness. Even his free-thinking father believed that the life of an English country parson suited his son well and would provide him with both the income and influence needed for a life of meaning and purpose. The equivalent of an early 19th century job description in Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine describes a parson as no sportsman, it's true, <laughs> though very fond of natural history, and a student of the habits of birds who build at their ease in the thick, leafy covert which engirdled on every side his own snug, ivy-covered house. A life of the mind amidst the mysteries of nature must have had its appeal. A lifelong Anglican, this affiliation qualified young Charles to enter Cambridge in 1828, intent on becoming a clergyman. Only members of the Church of England could attend Oxford and Cambridge in those days. In fact, a degree from either venerable institution was often crucial in securing a position in the most prestigious professions, whether clerical or not. That's what Charles saw coming down the pike. When confronted by the natural world around him, however, it seemed the church's teachings could not inspire like the glory of creation. Much later in life, Charles declared this in his autobiography. He says, nothing is more remarkable than the spread of skepticism or rationalism during the latter half of my life. His wife, Emma, certainly no religious prude, nevertheless implores Charles to temper his tenet of, quote, believing in nothing until it is proved. For the record, for the record Darwin called it a beautiful letter and scrawled on its envelope, when I am dead, Know how many times I have kissed and cried over this. No, Darwin didn't see it coming, and often neither do we. The beliefs we hold are both comfortable and comforting, a guarantee that if we play by the rules, we'll win in the end. These beliefs may help to make order in a world of chaos or peace in the midst of a storm. They often emulate our own desire for actions to have preordained consequences 
at once applicable to one and all. Our beliefs often unwittingly have as their goal a culture of conformity, one that conforms everything else to our idiosyncratic worldviews. We don't see it coming. Like the wild-eyed adolescent on the verge of adulthood, we wake up to find that we are resident aliens on a planet we no longer recognize. The life we have figured out so neatly becomes sullied with pain and suffering, the loss of a child, the abuse of parents, terminal illness, a broken heart, financial ruin, and all that we've known to be true is shaken beyond recognition. We may lose faith in faith. We don't see it coming. We take the lessons of Sabbath or Sunday school with us to college only to learn we didn't get the whole story. The arts offer new venues for experiencing mystery and wonder. And the sciences rigorously challenge us with hard data and prophetic hypotheses. The humanities point us to new saviors, and the Socratic method liberates all truth from orthodoxy. We may lose faith in the holy. Now, this has never been the point of Darwinian theory, or of science for that matter, to lose faith in faith or faith in the, a higher power. While extremists on both sides of the evolution debate have nurtured the myth that the facts of science and the faith of religion are irreconcilable or even at war, such a collision serves the best interests of neither discipline. In the lab or at the altar, the goal is knowledge or gnosis, plain and simple, or at least it should be. In past weeks, my own exploration of the religious faith of scientists, and in particular that of Charles Darwin, reveal a better way to respond when our belief systems are tested and strained to the point of implosion. Darwin, like so many of us, was unwilling to start with a blank theological slate and simply start over with matters of faith and reason. His insistence on finding the truth made it necessary to discard beliefs slowly and methodically, to examine them with the naturalist's eye and the parson's heart. Even when he came to the conclusion that the Bible's authority rested falsely on myths and miracles, still he was hesitant, even to the point of mild self-delusion. He wrote, but I was very unwilling to give up my beliefs. I feel sure of this, for I can remember often and often inventing daydreams of old letters between distinguished Romans and manuscripts being discovered at Pompeii or elsewhere, which confirmed in the most striking manner all that was written in the Gospels. But I found it more and more difficult, with free scope given to my imagination, to invent evidence that would suffice to convince me. 
Darwin very much wanted to believe, tried tirelessly to make orthodoxy work, but in, he simply couldn't do it in the end. As a Unitarian Universalist, I know what it is to lose faith and still yearn for personal piety and social transformation. In fact, I resonate with Freeman Dyson, the Princeton physicist, who described himself as a practicing Christian, but not a believing one. Many, like me, have come to our faith after applying reason to their own faith. My own ascent to unbelief often leaves me, quote, clapping and singing in the wind, yet sometimes I am still that quiet person down on my knees, to quote the poem Something by Mary Oliver. This ambiguity is the bedrock of my faith one that may evolve in a new direction I've yet to consider. I'm fine with this. The gods who leave the details to chance rather than to divine design are at least more palpable, if not more engaging. Darwin's promotion of natural selection as a means of evolution flies in the face of the orthodox belief in the divine's omniscience. An all-knowing God, a universal assumption in Darwin's 19th century England, not to mention in today's evangelicalism, could not account for the proliferation of human suffering in the world. What kind of a tyrant God is this who knows of a coming calamity and then lets it happen anyway? Moreover, when Darwin's travels on the HMS Beagle revealed the complexities of the variations among any given species, let alone between different species, he determined it impossible for life to be so well determined. In other words, it is creation itself that betrays an omniscient creator. In one of his many letters of 1860 to the botanist Asa Gray, Darwin challenges the more orthodox scientist with these analogies. He says, I see a bird which I want for food. Take my weapon and kill it. I do this designedly. An innocent and good man stands under a tree and is killed by a flash of lightning. Do you believe that God designedly killed this man? Many or most persons, he says, do believe this. I can't and don't. He says, if you believe so, do you believe that when a swallow snaps up a gnat, that God designed that particular swallow should snap up that particular gnat at that particular instant? He says, I believe that man and the gnat are in the same predicament. If the death of neither man nor gnat are designed, I see no reason to believe that their first birth or production should be necessarily designed. Well, I am not qualified to say whether this is good science. I will say with certainty that it is sound theology. There is much the faith of scientists can teach us.
Darwin issue, raised another theological issue that is, many of us have had to wrestle with at one time or another. If indeed there is only one true church, how judicious is it to condemn those who have yet to find it? What about those who are born in places where the church with a capital C does not exist? These are the questions that plagued my childhood as I tried to reconcile God's unconditional love with her unquestionable judgment. Darwin also witnessed sincere religious devotion to one God, many gods, or no God at all along the way, often with more intention than those with whom he worshiped at home. Can it really be true that the complex and compelling tenets of, say, Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism were all devised to lead ignorant heathens astray? It is difficult to travel the world and come home with one's exclusivism intact. You may be wondering where, the, where Darwin worshiped, given his heretical theology, not to mention his challenging scientific discoveries. While he remained an Anglican all his life, both Charles and wife Emma found sanctuary in the dissenting establishments of Protestant nonconformism. In other words, they worshiped with the local Unitarians. <laughs> We Unitarian Universalists have always opened our doors to those who have had them shut elsewhere before. We have historically based our beliefs on our own experiences and convictions. We do not limit truth to any one tradition, neither do we insist on worshiping one God, many gods, or no God. And while we hold in the balance both faith and reason. Our scale is tipped decidedly towards the latter. If you came here this morning ready to lose your faith religiously, all I can say is you're among friends. <laughs> Welcome home. In Darwin's day, Unitarianism departed from the Anglican Church in its denial of the Trinity and the doctrine of eternal damnation. English Unitarian congregations were comparatively small, well-educated, and allowed for a greater variance of belief and doubt than many nonconformist denominations. It was often the church of last resort. Charles' parents attended a Unitarian chapel throughout his childhood though he and his older brother Erasmus were christened in the Church of England as young boys. Again, in the 1800s, a nominal adherence to the Anglican Church's teachings was essential for admittance to many of the elite cultural and political institutions of England. It seems young Charles' parents were realists in both religion and society. Charles later followed suit with his own children until six years after his return from the Beagle voyage, they all moved to Downhouse in the village of Down. 
There was no Unitarian church in town, and the family dutifully attended the local Anglican Church of St. Mary each and every Sunday. This was the only place for them to worship, and it was up to each Darwin to separate fact from fiction. They discovered the Darwins. They discovered something significant about losing one's faith religiously. Each of us must make meaning for ourselves. Genuine faith cannot be taken on faith. It only comes from lived experience. The whole Darwin family took the sacrament. Darwin's own correspondence reveals his active engagement with church affairs, his role in local charities, his supervision of church and school finances, and his great concern for the status of the church in the community. Yet the Darwin's liberal religious beliefs persisted. The story is told of how Emma used to make her children turn around and face the back of the sanctuary when the, when the rest of the current congregation recited the Trinitarian Creed. <laughs> the Darwin family discovered something about losing one's faith religiously. Don't believe everything you hear and don't be afraid to believe what you know is true and right in life. Genuine faith is not doctrinal faith. It only derives from doubt. Writing about the evolution of his own faith, Charles Darwin has remarked that, quote, disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, causing no distress. Not only did he meticulously re-examine his religious life, his faith in light of new learnings. He also gave orthodoxy its due when its efficacy was duly noted. Writing in 1881 to the evangelist J.W.C. Fagan, Darwin is genuinely impressed by the, move, by the move improvements to community life in Down that followed in Fagan's footsteps. Here's what Darwin said, your services have done more to this village in a few months than all our efforts for many years. We have never been able to reclaim a drunkard, but through your services, I do not know that there is a drunkard left in the village. In fact, the entire family started attending Fagan's revival services, all the while maintaining their own faith. The Darwin family learned something about losing one's faith religiously. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Owning your religious past makes possible a more faithful future. You know, there's at least one kernel of truth in virtually all theologies. And that kernel of truth is worth finding or retaining by virtue of its truth. Like so many of us, Darwin was unable to figure out religion during the course of his lifetime. Darwin's scientific naturalism and unconforming faith kept the certainty of both theism and atheism at bay. He was content to remain an agnostic. Agnosticism, a term coined by Thomas Huxley, 
meant a strict denial of judgment. Understood thusly, I cannot imagine a firmer foundation for my own faith. Who knew that Darwin's ascent to unbelief mirrored my own so closely? Perhaps it reflects a part of your spiritual journey as well. Like Darwin over 200 years ago, I didn't see it coming. Like all truly great spiritual awakenings, I didn't see it coming. That's the real miracle. Reason, faith, doubt, certainty, disbelief, dogma. When each of these dyads are held in creative tension, we can be sure we're on the path of spiritual growth. Once we are freed from doctrines that seek to divide us, once we admit our own agnosticism, and once we base our beliefs on our own experiences and convictions, only then will we live lives of meaning and purpose. Only then will we live deliberately and authentically. In these words attributed to Emerson, we may find our fulfillment. He writes, do not follow where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail to the glory of life. <laughs>